Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is the California Report magazine. On today's show, we meet two men who came here from Africa to understand who they really are. One left Sudan as a boy with nothing but his yellow shorts. It was scary. The enemy is coming. If you don't come with us now, you will be killed. And a black actor talks about her big white moment and all the little white moments that came after. When you put on a white voice, you also put on white privilege. And instantly, if they think you're white, then they're like, oh yes, let me get on top of that. Plus, a beloved San Francisco hospice confronts its own end. I'm April Dimbosky, sitting in for Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. It was early in the morning when Edris Seseguya got caught, caught kissing another man. He was living in his native Uganda, where being gay is against the law. People who are found guilty are put in jail, unless the neighbors come up with their own punishment first. Reporter Karina Sadie brings us this story of Edris's journey from Uganda to California in search of safety. <laughs> From the outside, Edris Seseguya had it all. A family, a construction business, a house, and a wife. He was 32 years old, a Muslim, and he lived in the city of Kampala, the Ugandan capital. But on the inside, he knew he wasn't being true to himself. I wanted to impress other people around, but inside me it was somebody else. Edris lost everything in 2012 for loving another man. In Uganda, that's a crime that can lead to life in prison. It was very early in the morning at around 7, 7 a.m. We are just casing, you know, we had forgotten to close the door. And that's when a man they thought was a friend walked in on them. So he started like screaming, making a noise. Because it was morning time, a lot of people, they came out in their homes. People were saying, you know, let us kill them, let us kill them. Edris knew what could happen for loving someone of the same sex. 
just a year earlier, one of Uganda's most outspoken LGBT rights activists had been hammered to death. So when Edris and his partner were discovered that morning, they quickly locked the doors. When we locked ourselves in the house, people, they wanted to burn down the house. They destroyed almost everything. The landlord begged protesters not to burn down the house, but to call the police instead. When the officers arrived, they arrested Edris and his partner and put them in a crowded jail cell. The police told the other inmates that the two men were gay. Immediately after closing, the case erupted in the cell. The chaos turned to violence. The inmates beat Edris and his partner in the dark and threatened to kill them. This was the last time they saw each other. It was really very bad, very bad situation. Edris's family never visited him in jail. Most of them, they were happy that I'm in jail. That's why they didn't come to see me. Because I knew if you know somebody who's a gay and you don't report, you are also taken as a criminal. Maybe that's why they didn't show up. After a month in jail, a colleague bailed Edris out. He was required to report regularly to the authorities and he couldn't get his business license renewed because he was gay. That's when I started like living in fear. Life became so stressful for Edris that he decided to take a break to visit family in the US. But then he learned that police back in Uganda issued a warrant for his arrest. He had failed to report to the authorities. My friend, the one who bailed me out, is the one who told me, you know what, don't come back. Edris decided to seek political asylum in California. Four years after arriving in LA, he's still wary of revealing too much to strangers. Even here in California, a world away from Uganda, he hasn't escaped homophobia in the immigrant community. People, they always want to know, you know, why, why, why? A lot of people, they want you to believe in what they do believe in. At the end of that day, it's none of their business, it's your business. But there's another reason why this refugee from Uganda is so guarded. Not only did Edris lose his family, his partner, and his job, but here in Los Angeles, he is homeless. When I got here, I had like some money, then the person I was living with they kicked me out because I had no money. I was homeless. This explains why our interviews have taken place inside his friend's battered old minivan. It took him a while to admit it to me, but this is where he lives. He sleeps scrunched up on the seats. All his important belongings, his passport, are stuffed into his backpack. Every day he backs up the van to the recycling bins at a swap meet in Van Nuys. He scrapes together around $300 a month. Oh yeah, right now we are sorting. We're sorting the recycle because you have to put the can in a separate, like, separate bag. Then you put the bottles in the separate bag. Small and big. You sort everything out. This is all he has to survive. But Edris doesn't complain. He's grateful to be alive. I wanted to live my life to the fullest, the way I wanted it to be. I chose what was best for me. <laughs> to his relief, not long ago, Edris heard rumors that his former partner escaped safely to South Africa. Today, Edris has set his sights on becoming a defense attorney to fight for people's rights. But he has a long journey ahead. You have to be with ambition. 
When you don't have ambition, there is nothing you're going to do. There is nothing you're going to secure. First, Edris Sesaguya has to secure his political asylum by proving what happened to him in Uganda. In the meantime, he has to survive financially and try to get off the streets. And one day, he hopes, live openly as a gay man in Los Angeles. Every day I have hope. So as long as I'm still alive, I have hope that one day I can make it. Only then can he make his California dream a reality. For the California Report, I'm Karina Sadi in Los Angeles. That story is part of a collaboration with the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Working with us here on the California Report magazine, students spent a semester examining what the California dream means to people across Los Angeles. Edris's wish to be himself in California is rooted in a long history. So many innovations of the gay rights movement started here. During the height of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, some nurses were afraid to touch patients. Men dying of AIDS were left languishing alone in the hallways of county hospitals. And it was during this time that the Zen Hospice Project was founded in San Francisco. Buddhist practitioners bought an old Victorian in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood where AIDS patients could die with dignity and get compassionate care. Now, after 30 years of caring for people with all kinds of illnesses, the house is closing its doors. I went to the house this week to talk to the executive director about what happened. When I get there, I'm surprised to see a guy standing on scaffolding outside, power washing windows. You want to come in? Uh, yeah. The front door opens, and I walk up the stairs. Come on in. I'm George Keller. April. Come Come on Nice to meet you. Yeah. It's a little, uh, little chaotic here. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I was expecting it to be... What it was. Frozen in time. It's in, it's in the total transition. All the furniture is gone. The floors are covered with canvas tarps, and blue tape lines the perimeter of the living room. Men in jumpsuits and face masks are painting the fireplace. Now this is this is tearing up the old carpet um, on the stairway to um, get it ready to be repaired. When I got the hospice's press release this week, I noted the careful wording that the guest house was suspending caregiving services, that they hoped they could offer them again at some point. The implication was clear. Maybe a local tech billionaire could step in with a Hail Mary donation. But this is a house that's being primed for a realtor to stage it and put it up for sale. Five bedrooms, three baths. It has a boarding house feel to it, in all honesty. Hospice operations stopped in June, but before the beds were cleared out, before all the nurses were laid off, the guest house had room for six residents. They called them residents, not patients. This was their home, not a hospice. And they came here not to die, but to live fully until the end of their lives. A corps of kitchen volunteers prepared three meals a day to order for every resident, even when they could no longer eat. They can smell it, they can see it. If they want to taste it, they can. But at least feeling like they're not, not discarded and ignored and not important. You are not. 
Volunteers would sit with residents, holding their hands for hours, telling stories. They even had a choir come through. The organization became a pioneer in what it means to die well. It helped shape a national movement away from sterile hospital deaths hooked up to machines to a mindful aesthetic end that emphasized being present with what was happening. Donors loved the mission, and they were generous, until the 2016 election. And we've been struggling through, you know, 2017. This year, they're more than a million dollars short. Donors told George they had to cut back on their gifts to the hospice because they needed to support more pressing issues. Voting rights or women in in politics or immigration help and homeless. There's a lot of interest in helping the homeless situation. But some of the blame sits with the Zen Hospice Project itself. It relied too much on loyal donors and didn't cultivate enough new ones. And for years, the hospice refused to get licensed under the government's Medicare and Medicaid programs. So they never got the reimbursement payments. We don't want to compromise our commitment to this compassionate care model. And if that commitment is compromised by the reporting requirements or by the regulatory requirements, we don't want to go there. But idealism doesn't pay the bills. And that's actually why George Keller was brought in four years ago. He's a Zen Buddhist, and he's also a Silicon Valley guy, a software engineer who talks about sales and marketing and scaling operations. I am using sort of business-like terms to talk about it, but I think you have to. He says there are 43 million informal caregivers in the U.S., people taking care of their own parents or spouses, and they need help. He says if they sell the guest house, they can reinvest that money in their caregiver education program. As painful and as difficult and sad as it is, which it is, we, we're letting it go, and, and that will create another space for something else to present itself. And maybe that something else is this massive opportunity to train and educate. How does that make you feel to imagine that this home that's been part of Zen Hospice Project for 30 years could could be sold to a Facebook employee for a couple million dollars? Make that five or six million dollars. It's nothing that I signed up for. It's not what I expected. Here, he shifts from business guy George to Zen George. He gazes at the flowers on the back patio. For us, I guess it's a lesson in impermanence and a lesson in, um, in things change and not get as, as attached as we are because everybody here is very attached to this. To the house itself and to the intimate care that they provided here. Let's take a break now and go to the movies. This weekend, the new Spike Lee joint, Black Klansman, comes out in theaters. It's set in the early 70s, and it's based on a true story about Ron Stallworth, the first black detective to work in the Colorado Springs Police Department. His mission? Infiltrate the KKK. He begins the operation by using his white voice on the phone. Hello. This is Ron Stallworth calling. Well, who am I speaking with? This is David Duke, Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? KQED's Chloe Veltman brings us the story of a California actor. She knows what it's like to have to disguise your true voice to assimilate into a white-dominated culture, both on screen and off. 
The first time Margot Hall tried out for drama school, she did a monologue from For Coloured Girls Who've Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough, a classic black feminist theatre piece by Entozaka Shange. Which is like this really black monologue, you know, Bo Willie Brown dropped my babies, you know, and I'm crying and doing my thing and everybody's like, oh, that was great. But Margot failed her audition. Her older sister pushed her to try again and the budding actor got a second chance. This time, she decided to infiltrate the system by coming across as less black. And I did Emily from our town. And it was like, oh, Earth. Sitting in her living room at home in Oakland, Margot jokes about this as being a big white moment for her. White play, white voice, she even wore a white dress. And guess what? I got into the school. And, and, you know, we knew what we were doing. It wasn't like, oh, I guess I have to kowtow. It was like, no, I'm going to get into school and then I'm going to raise hell. Margot says she did do her fair share of hell raising there, like forming her own theatre troupe to combat the school's lack of main stage roles for black actors. Since then, Margot has become one of the most respected performers and directors in the Bay Area, with dozens of stage and screen credits to her name. But she says that early experience of having to use her white voice to get ahead was traumatic. When I look back at it, it was that I had to do that. Margot says white voice is baked into the way many black people speak. It's a fact of life that many other people might not be conscious of. So if you're African-American and you feel like you will be more respected if for some reason you sounded like a white person, if you create the illusion that you speak like them, then you are like them and they feel like, okay, now I can listen to you because you're not ignorant, you're not uneducated. She's sometimes had to use that voice over the years to get stuff done, both professionally and personally, like trying to get medical attention for her mom who had cancer. It's an odd thing when you put on a white voice, you also put on white privilege. And instantly, if they think you're white, then they're like, oh yes, let me get on top of that because they feel like you have some power. And if you don't use your white voice, then they assume that you're poor, you probably can't pay for what you're asking for, and they'll just shuffle you around. And really, it's all just an act, says movie director Boots Riley. Whiteness is a thing that is performed, that is not inherited, and so is blackness. Race is a performance. It's one that, you know, we don't necessarily have a choice in. I caught up with Riley, the director of Sorry to Bother You, in between screenings at a film festival. Riley's movie is one of several new releases by black filmmakers examining the absurd lengths that black people have to go to to get by in a world of white privilege. Another is Blind Spotting, Margot's latest film. In it, she plays a no-nonsense mom. You really couldn't find an apartment? The whole damn city got a for rent sign on it. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? If so, what is the nature of your crime? Well, whose fault is that? Margot and I recently went to see the movie together. We're at the Grand Lake Theatre near where she lives. Before we go in, Margot tells me she was there for the splashy premiere just a couple of weeks earlier. It was a big night, red carpet and all that fun stuff. I was dressed up, it was really nice. So now I just want to sit back and watch the film 
not worry about, oh God, I'm coming up. What if I suck? At the end, as the staff cleans up around us, Margot tells me seeing the movie this time around, minus the opening night hype, made her feel even more sorrow about the disguises people feel they have to wear just to get by. What is that? What is that? <laughs> that we have to pretend to be something other than ourselves. She hopes the latest wave of releases by this new generation of black filmmakers will empower more black people to reclaim their true identities. I think all of those voices, they're all going to uh, just tear stuff up, and I'm really excited about that. Not every black American can or wants to use a white voice. And Margot Hall says, maybe by broaching the subject in film, eventually black people won't have to. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman. For most of his childhood, David Ayul Mayom barely saw his father. He was Sudan in the 1980s, and his dad was fighting with a rebel group against the government during the Second Civil War. David lived with his mother, and when he was eight years old, he had to make a painful choice. Stay at home with her and almost surely be killed. Or set out on foot with thousands of other young boys to escape the government army. In the last of our series about the long-term impacts of childhood separation, KQED's Laura Clivens tells us how David left his small village and eventually landed in San Jose. Even when he was eight years old, David had a lot of responsibility and autonomy. He loved it. He and other boys in his village would take their cattle out to graze. While our cattle are grazing, we'd just be playing around. They'd play and hunt, too, spearing gazelles or birds and dividing up the meat. David loved bringing the food home to his mother in their adobe house. So my mom used to tell me that, yeah, because you are strong and you are dominant, now what I'm seeing with you, son, you're going to be a leader. As David and his 10-year-old brother prepared to take the cattle out one day, a group of soldiers approached them. They were from the rebel army their father fought with. They carried AK-47s. They definitely look stressed and say that the enemy is coming. If you don't come with us now, you will be killed. That's because the enemy, the Sudanese armed forces, wanted to kill the village boys who they believed would later become rebel soldiers. The brothers could hear fighting in a nearby village. The sound of the gun. We're seeing the smoke house were being set on fire. The woman crying because some of the kids were already killed. They knew they could be next, so they decided to leave with the rebels. But first, they sped home to say goodbye to their mother. So my mom said, OK. There's no arguing because my mom already knows the situation. David didn't know if he would ever see her again. They embraced. Tight hug. My mom did not want to let go, but, you know, she has to do it very quick. My mom was shedding tears and looking down. She didn't know what will happen to us, where we are being taken. They were being taken to Ethiopia. David and his brother hurried out of their village on foot. David had nothing but the yellow shorts he was wearing. His brother carried a small backpack. They were two of about 5,000 young boys, the lost boys of Sudan. Later, that number would swell to more than 20,000. It was scary because you are going to an unknown place and also it started getting really tough from the beginning. 
The group of six to 14-year-olds walked longer distances than they'd ever gone with their cattle. They trekked in two parallel lines on a journey that would end up taking a month and a half. Again and again, David would have the same thought. The only thing you want to do is just go back to your, your home. But he didn't know if that home still existed or how his family back in the village was even doing. Were they alive? If they were, would David survive long enough to see them again? You start getting terrified, like, am I going to die? Will we all die? You start leaving, hoping to see the next day. The hardships mounted for the boys. No water. They drank from muddy puddles. Sometimes they drank their own urine. No food. They foraged in the forest. And they faced hungry, wild animals. David says the younger boys like him were most likely to die. He thinks 15% of the boys died on this walk to Ethiopia. He was determined not to be one of them. The only thing that kept us going is just when you see other boys you don't feel like you're going through this by yourself. You stay determined, if that guy can do it, why not me? Finally, the group crossed the border into a refugee camp in Ethiopia. They stayed there for three years and then had to move again to another one in Kenya. As time passed, David and his brother spent more years living as refugees than in their home village. He often wondered what happened to the rest of their family. When David was 17 years old, a rumor spread through the camp that new people had arrived from villages near his. I was excited and I was hoping that my mom would be one of the people that are back to that camp. He searched among the camp newcomers. After months, he met a woman who said she knew his mother and could take him to her. He followed her until she disappeared into a thatch-roofed home. Moments later, his mother, wearing a dress, her hair in braids, came out. She came running. And then when she got close to me, she stands still. She searched his features for traces of the eight-year-old she said goodbye to nearly a decade before. The boy she named Ayual, who took the name David in the camp. The woman told her, this is your son, David Ayual. She said, really? I say, Mama, and Ayual. This is me, Ayual. And then she hold me for a while, tied hug. When she raised her head, there were tears on her eyes. Almost immediately after, David and his brother moved in with their mom. It took time for me to get used to that moment of being together again. He was afraid it was all temporary. You feel that you have to maximize that opportunity out or else she may not be there the next day. But she was. Amazingly, David's entire family ended up in the refugee camp together. Even his father, who'd fought for years with the rebels. Ultimately, David and a younger brother resettled to the U.S. to study, a separation by choice, bridged by phone calls and visits. At first, concentrating was hard for David. He'd have flashbacks of relentless thirst, of being a child wandering for years without his mom. But slowly, he learned to focus. Now, David Ayual Mayam has a bachelor's and a master's in economics. He's applying for PhD programs. He founded and runs a nonprofit to bring technology to South Sudan. Despite the trauma he endured, he thinks his past made him resilient. I tend to think of the life that I had make me stronger now. That strong man his mother always knew he'd become. For The California Report, I'm Laura Clivens.
that's The California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. The director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Howard Gelman. Our senior editor is Victoria Malion. David Marks is our online producer. Our intern is Marisol Medina Cadena. The California Report's editorial team includes Tanya Mosley, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm April Dimbaski. Sasha Coca will be back next week. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.